listener, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I will talk with Shannon Dorsey about implementation in low-resource settings, task sharing, and using laypersons for service delivery, and how to make implementation science more applied. Along the way, we will quiz Shannon about her knowledge of quotes from disgruntled visitors to our nation's national parks. Heads up that during today's show, I give a remarkably inaccurate summary of research from the Great Smoky Mountains study. In my defense, I last read this paper about 20 years ago. While many of the details I provided about this were wrong, the take-home message is not. Go read the study for yourself and see what I mean. I think you're really going to like today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome. Well, I'm Mike Pullman. I'm here with my co-host, Kevin King. Hey, everyone. And we are talking with Shannon Dorsey. Uh, We're super happy to talk with Shannon today. Shannon is a professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Psychology, and she is a adjunct professor in the Departments of Global Health and the Department of uh, Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She is currently the director of the RISE Mental Health Lab, RISE standing for Research in Implementation Science and Effectiveness in Mental Health, and RISE being an acronym that's probably a pretty common acronym in implementation science. Um, it's so We're so happy to have Shannon here today. I've known Shannon for a long time since I first came to the University of Washington. She is a colleague, and she's also a good friend. We spend a lot of time time together doing things uh, outside of outside of work. And so this should be a really fun conversation. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. Excited to be with y'all. Well, Shannon, as you know, our podcast, you know, needs a name. And uh, so we've been asking all of the folks who come on if they have any ideas for, you know, what, what we should name it. Yeah, so I've got two there. You've already interviewed Aaron Lyon or not? We have. No one can quite reach the levels of acronyms for Aaron Lyon, but I've done my best. Um, My first one is the BB pod, which would be the brew bud pod, the POD being for pontificating on DI. And the other one is not an acronym. (laughs) (laughs) That took a really good turn, Shannon. I love it. There you go. Because folks may not know how much these two connected over brewing their own home beer and the great uh, drinks that they have made and I have enjoyed over the years. And then my other one is two guys and a radi instead of two guys and a baby. So it's like two guys and a radio because sort of a podcast is kind of like the nice. radio. It's the best nice. I could do. Nice. I like that. I like that. You know, Kara Lewis had a similar one. I can't remember. Yeah, two guys in a podcast, I think, although we had to cut that out because she she wanted us to edit it. So Oh, so I'm glad, well, you can I'm glad we got that in there. I'm glad we got yeah, that in there. Two guys yeah. in a radio. There you go. I, I th- I'm a really big fan of the pontificating one, just if anything, because if there's any word that describes me, it's pontification. So I really, I'm grateful. <laughs> I may be on faculty with Kevin and know that. So maybe, yes, exactly. Yeah, possibly, possibly. So um, Shannon, maybe tell us, start, you could start by telling us a bit about your career and how you found yourself where you are. 
Yeah, it's probably a pretty common story for implementation scientists that are more of my age, which is that I didn't get into implementation science because it was a field of study I wanted to get into, but I was trying to help community clinicians actually in North Carolina at the time implement trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And they, for kids in foster care and for kids in treatment foster care, they loved the treatment, they loved the training, they loved the intervention. But trying to do the intervention under the challenges they had in their organization, supervisors who focused on different approaches, all the workforce challenges and demands on their time, it really seemed like the training and the clinical intervention, which I thought was the primary thing, and I think a lot of us thought was the primary thing maybe in the early 2000s, wasn't what they needed. They needed all the other supports. How do I do it in the limited hours that I have? How do I help my supervisor buy in? How does my organization do what they need to do to support me in bringing on this new innovation. And I just got really passionate about all the other stuff they needed because we did as clinical psychologists seem to know how to create some interventions that had some pretty good evidence and had some good effects for youth, but we didn't seem to address all those other things. And it seemed like without thinking about all the other things, I was never going to have the impact that I wanted to have, which was to improve the lives of children and youth, and especially kids in foster care and treatment foster care. So when I started trying to figure out what is it that we need to do, that's when I think I started connecting with other folks who were talking about all the kinds of things that wrap around an intervention to make clinicians able to be successful, happy, and do the things that we both wanted to do, which was improve lives of children and adolescents. That's great. And I know that one of the areas that you found yourself in now is focusing in kind of under-resourced settings and international areas in particular. And I'm kind of curious how that work got started. And I'd love to get into the details on on this because I feel like there are a lot of um, applications from international work that can be kind of brought back home. So how did you get started in that work? What are you doing right now? Yeah, that's a great thing to think about. Well, I think I've always been interested. I'm from Albany, Georgia, which is a very small town in Southwest Georgia without a lot of resources itself. And so I think I've always been interested in what are the communities, regions, and settings that kids may find themselves in need of mental health care. And there just aren't a lot of resources for that. There's not a children's hospital. There's not maybe resources to pay for private practice. There's not mental health professionals. And so I was at Duke and in North Carolina when I was talking about what got me into implementation science. And while I was there, I had some colleagues in psychiatry who were doing work in Tanzania and Kenya and looking at children who had had experienced parental death because of the AIDS epidemic. And they were trying to do a study to understand what did kids need, you know, after parental death? Was it you know, education support, better access to food, school fees, all the kinds of basic needs and resource related things when you think about losing a parent and a parental income or support. But what they kept learning is that some of the guardians of these kids where one or both parents had died were saying one of the things that we need is we don't know how to help children with how sad they are, how upset they are after the parent's death. And most of the folks doing this study were in public policy. Um, One of them was a mentor of mine who was a clinical psychologist, but trauma-focused CBT wasn't one of her intervention expertise. So she just reached out to me and just said, you know, do you think there's something we could do with this intervention? We're in the U.S. It's only delivered by master's and PhD level folks. Is there anything we could do where we could bring this intervention 
to places where we actually don't have a lot of mental health professionals and could community members, lay folks learn to do an intervention that could help these children and adolescents. And so that's kind of how I got into that work. I was a collaborator with them and they brought me in because I had the trauma-focused CBT expertise. And in partnering with them, I think I just got so excited about what community members and lay folks can do to meet the needs of their own communities where you don't need a PhD and you don't need even a master's level person, which I think is probably some of what you're getting at, Mike, in terms of, you know, what we can bring home to the U.S. And I can talk about that more as well. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this kind of work is really generalizable, even within the U.S., because it, as you said, there's lots of settings where there's just not a lot of resources. Um, and I'm sure lots of our listeners and lots of people have experienced, even in high resource cities where there's lots of well-trained people, it sometimes can be hard, if not impossible, to find somebody providing you know, get you providing a, f- a therapy at all, much less providing effective evidence-based therapies. Is that, I mean, is that one of the ways that you see it? Absolutely. I mean, even if there is someone in your community, they may not share an overlapping identity with you that you feel like you have a connection with them. And, you know, when we use PhDs, there's not that many. And when we use master's level folks, we're often limiting how likely is this person to understand your lived experience, your day-to-day, to be in the same community your kid is living in. In the areas where we're working in Tanzania, Kenya, other countries, there just will never be a mental health workforce, professional workforce that will meet the need. But that is very true around here. I mean, the three of us live in King County. That's one of the most probably well-resourced counties in the U.S. And yet there aren't enough mental health providers and certainly not ones who may have overlapping identity that you feel like could really understand where you're coming from, you might connect with might speak your language when you think about how many immigrants that we have in King County. And so, yeah, it's a thing we've done as clinical psychologists. It's a thing that we've done as licensed providers to say that this is going to be something that is owned by people with a certain degree that um, Vikram Mattel has said that's going to be, we're going to be the ones that exclude it. So he's a, a researcher who's at Harvard now and he's Indian and he talks about like, it's the licensing boards, it's us that exclude It's not skill. We know people without mental health degrees, they need support. They need wraparound care because you may not know how to deal with psychosis or serious suicidality, but can you deliver an intervention where people can change their thoughts, change their feelings, understand that how we think about a situation can be more hopeful, more helpful, less lonely. That's a domain that lots of people can share expertise in, and it doesn't need to belong only to people with a certain credential. You mentioned the uh, shared lived experience, and I see how that can build a sense of relatedness between providers and and providees or those who are needing support. I think there's another aspect too, which is that the people who have been through that experience maybe have a kind of passion that is really difficult for a, a professional provider to bring to the table. Yeah, when I've talked with people at the state level in Washington, many of whom I think you probably know also, Mike, they've talked about their own experiences, not only as running mental health, but their own experience as a parent of a child with a mental health condition and how having a peer partner who has gone through the same mental health condition, same treatment, you just feel like you can be open with them. Like, can I really do this? Am I able to do this? And so even when I say lived experience there, I'm talking about the mental health condition. 
But I think it's also just being from the same community, you know, knowing the schools. When we talk about lived experience, it could be having a shared experience with a mental health condition, whether it's, you know, being a parent of a child with depression or a parent of a child with behavior problems. But it can also be that, you know, the schools that your kid is in. In one of the areas we work in Western Kenya, you know, having the same tribal affiliation can make a really big difference. It can make a big difference that, you know, government schools that have sometimes 100 kids in the classroom. So I think there can be all kinds of different aspects of identity or aspects of, you know, the mental health condition that's being treated, where having someone who knows different pieces of that can be helpful, even if it's not all of them. You know, one thing I think is pretty interesting about international work that may not be as true for under-resourced settings in the United States, or at least this was the case several years ago, is that we're willing to take innovative steps around peer providers that we may not be as willing to do in the U.S. I remember, um, you know, as you know, I've been really interested in peer support for a while now. And so I was interested in a project where we were going to try to basically train you know, parents to provide evidence-based supportive skills, therapeutic skills in their peer, in their peer providing relationship. Um, but was told by, you know, a PO that, oh, we're, we just want to fund that. Like parent peer providers can be around to help other parents get into services so that the professionals can do the work. And they can be around to sort of help parents get bus tickets and other sort of, you know, non-therapeutic elements, but the delivery of the therapy was something that was viewed with a lot of skepticism. Whereas I feel like in the international settings, this may be more accepted because of the the lack of professional providers. Is this something that's changed in the U.S. over the last few years? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think states are moving in better directions to do some of it. Like, you know, we have a bachelor's level credential in Washington state now, so you don't have to have a master's. But I still think it's a big issue because like I was mentioning with Vikram Patel, he's like, we're going to be our own barriers. It's going to be our licensing boards. And yet, you know, with implementation science, we know that being licensed, I believe, does not actually relate to higher quality care. It is truly, you know, a legal thing. This person is licensed. So, you know, you may be less likely to be sued. So I know that a lot of folks in California and rural areas have been working on this, a lot of folks in Alaska, a lot of folks, folks working with tribal communities. And I think people have made some advances, but it is way harder to do here. Some of the countries I work in, they have a whole setup where like community health volunteers in Kenya, it's considered to be the last mile of healthcare. And they are individuals that are in communities that connect you to the health dispensary or the health facility that you should be able to walk to. And it's just part of how their care is set up that ours is not. But yeah, I do think there are barriers in many high income countries. And the UK has figured some of this out. You know, they have a role for non-masters, non-PhD folks to do certain things. But yeah, I think there's a paper on frugal innovations. And I think a lot of times when you have a higher resource setting, we make things more expensive and we don't use frugal innovations, but then we will do increasingly, I think, translation across communities. And there's some old language that used to call that reverse translation or reverse flow, basically acting as if all good things flow from high resource settings to low resource settings, which is always a mistake. So the frugal innovations, I think, should be things that are adopted more in high-income settings, because then we can do better quality care with the resources that we have. Uh, that's a really interesting 
perspective, Shannon. I don't think I've heard you talk about sort of the ways that uh, resources in a community or in a country can raise or lower barriers, um, sort of in ways that may not be sort of in line with the science. Um, we've spent some time talking about lay providers and your work on, on lay providers. I'm wondering, what are some lessons that you feel like you've taken from the international work you've done around implementation? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think the most important lesson is just how well lay providers can deliver high quality treatment. And they need to be trained, they need to be supervised. A colleague of mine, Paul Bolton, talks about the supervision as the second part of training. Because when you talk to people about rolling out interventions, people are always focused on training. And I think of that as that in-person piece that you do or that Zoom piece, not the follow-up, which is how do you use that training with in my case, the children and adolescents you're working with. So, you know, with training and with close supervision, lay providers can deliver outstanding high quality interventions to children and youth. And increasingly, we're studying that where lay providers are promoted to be the supervisors, lay providers are promoted to be the trainers. And I think in high income settings and Western, probably predominantly white academic institutions, people don't always want to have the lay providers be able to step up to those higher levels. Sometimes I think treatment developers can think the thing that matters, right? The thing that drives outcomes is their intervention itself. But it's not that. It's also understanding the context that families live in, you know, and we have Kenyan lay counselors who promoted to be supervisors, and then they're now the trainers. And in our early data, their effect sizes are just as good as a paper Kevin and I published where I was the trainer and supervisor, and then my Tanzanian colleagues are the supervisors. But these outcomes, I think, are just as good. And it's because now they have a Kenyan who did their training, a Kenyan who's their supervisor. They know the school context. They know the community. They know what's needed. And so, you know, I think one of the biggest things is just you don't have to have a professional degree, what we've already been talking about, to deliver high quality care. And we probably put too many restrictions on who can be the leaders of these innovations, these kind of cascading implementations. And there's data on cascading implementation from Patty Chamberlain and others, but yet everyone worries more about effect size and maybe not so much about reach. and I think that slows down our ability to improve the lives of children and adolescents. I just, I just wanted to make a quick comment on effect sizes. Uh, you know, there's a um, becoming of a bit of a canard and sort of the open science community about effect sizes that are impossibly large, that people are sort of reconsidering what effect sizes we should see in psychology, which I think is reasonable for a lot of the kind of research that a lot of us do, whether it's observational or it's like small, you know, small experiments, nudge experiments. Like, should we really expect a Cohen's D of 0.5 or 1.0? You know, is that, are those really reasonable, even cutoffs for things like what is really large? And the one thing I always come back to and I'm always impressed with um, having been the analyst for several trials of TFCBT or exposure sort of oriented trauma therapies. And also I say this knowing that there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into these therapies. So we're not talking like a one-time, you know, brief manipulation where you're saying, oh, we have this giant effect size, but man, the effect sizes are always big for these exposure-based therapies. You know, I remember TFCBT effect sizes of 0.8 and I was just doing analysis for 
another person's, you know, trauma focused um, treatment trial. And again, they're getting these effect sizes of 0.8. And for, uh, you know, listeners who might not have effect sizes in your head, we're talking 0.8 is about 80% of a standard deviation difference between uh, an intervention and a control group. And so I just think it's, it, it, it's remarkable to me that we, you get those giant effects, even as you sort of start handing off the responsibility sort of further down the chain that this technology is so effective. And, and, and it, I think it's so cool that you're showing, hey, we can put this in the hands of people who are part of the community. They haven't maybe gone through our formal, you know, sort of gatekeeping training systems and they can still do it and they can do it with tremendous efficacy. I just think that's so impressive. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we think about implementation science, we have so many frameworks and so many conceptual models and things like that. But I often go back to re-aim just because it's so simple and it includes effectiveness as one of the things we care about. But the other things are reach and maintenance. And Doug Zatzik, a colleague of ours at UW, did a small study where he scaled up to population effect, an intervention that so few people got but was really effective. And another intervention that everybody got, but had a tiny little effect size. And the population impact was astoundingly different for the one that everyone got. And so when I think about strategies like lay counselor delivery in countries with fewer resources, and really people are thinking more about regions within countries with resources, right? Because somewhere like Seattle has a lot more resources than somewhere like Uh, Mason County and Washington. And Nairobi has a lot more resources than somewhere like Homa Bay in Kenya. But if reach matters, like how many people get this intervention and can it be maintained, then we need to be using community members. And we don't need to be using a PhD like me who cost a lot to fly in and train. We need to be using these strategies. And like you said, Kevin, we're getting great effect sizes. But honestly, even if they were like 0.4 or 0.3, but everybody could get the intervention because We've moved to having teachers deliver the intervention. We've moved to having community health volunteers deliver the intervention. And those make a huge difference. And they love the intervention. They love doing it and supporting each other to deliver care. Then we're going to have better outcomes overall because we're going to hit that population health impact in a way that we're not with precious, small, gigantic effect sizes and gatekeeping on who could deliver, who can train and supervise. Yeah, you know, this is more of a methodological commentary, but when we look at our lists of evidence-based practices, they're so heavily biased in favor of one-to-one treatment. And one of the reasons why they're so heavily biased in favor of that is because those are the easiest treatments to show large effect sizes. You need a small, you need a small sample versus community-based kinds of uh, rollouts, policy-based kinds of evidence-based practices. You have this huge problem of nesting that lowers your effect size or your ability to detect that effect size. And then you do have these smaller effects, but we just don't put that kind of focus on on reach and impact. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. I'm curious when it comes to reach and impact, as both of our listeners know, and that is uh, Kevin's wife and my mom, we've talked in the past around sort of how to build community partnerships and the importance of that. And in particular, in international settings, it seems like it may be particularly difficult because of language, cultural uh, barriers, and then just the travel and the distance. I'm really curious how you begin to, how you begin a international collaboration and what your personal approach to community-based participatory research looks like. That is a great question. 
And even reflecting back on the thing you said a moment ago, I guess I should nod to the fact for folks who don't know that our work in Kenya and Tanzania was a group-based intervention for the reasons that you said, Mike. So it's not this one-to-one. Also, it's easier to train someone to do a group-based intervention. You're not tailoring and individualizing it quite as much, but it also makes it easier to train them. I think there's a lot of discussion now about whether somebody like me, who is from the United States, that is not Kenyan, um, and does not have a shared identity with folks in communities I'm working in, should I even be doing that work? 10 years ago, there was a gap to fill. And I think we've had some nice outcomes and some nice partnerships from that. Increasingly, I was on two calls this morning with colleagues at the University of Nairobi who are leading grants and I'm in a support role. And so that is the kind of the place that I think I'm moving. But for a lot of the work that we did, I mean, I think everything is relationships, respect, knowing everybody's bringing something to the table that matters. Like I don't know Kenyan schools. I don't know you know, maybe the town we were working in the same way. I knew this one thing, which is trauma-focused CBT. A lot of my closest partnerships, we have kids the same age. We talk about being mothers and parents. I've brought my partners to the U.S. just like I've gone to see them. But a lot of time of listening and true respect and co-editing things. One of my favorite activities was when we moved from the pilot study of TFCBT in Tanzania to a larger study that was a large RCT in Tanzania and Kenya. We co-edited the manual together and we had built a strong relationship through being parents of similarly aged kids, talking about those issues, having meals together, playing games together. Luckily at that time, I did not have a kid. So I could spend a lot more time in Tanzania and Kenya with my colleagues And I think time is such an important resource that they gave and that I gave, but we co-edited each other's stuff. They'd be like, no, Shannon, that's not the way I would do that one. You should do this instead. We also had people come together and share the ways that they had tweaked the intervention. We always called it following the recipe, which was the essential pieces. Like you do have to have the child talk about parental death, but we always said people spice up the recipe different ways, depending on who's at your table, who's in your kitchen. And so we went into it saying adaptation is important from the beginning, and I'm expecting for you to lead and do that adaptation. So I think that was a big piece of it. And when I saw them editing the manual with me, changing things, bringing in their spicing it up, I think that's when I was like, okay, we've achieved a relationship where they will critique me, they will change what's there. Um, But I think it's relationships. I, you know, I, I love the way you describe that. It sounds very, as I was trained a lot in motivational interviewing and a lot of this stuff sounds very, is very consistent with this MI framework of, hey, we're going in this as a collaborator. I'm an expert on this thing. You're an expert on your life. You're an expert on your community. You're an expert on your trauma. You know, you're an expert on the organization you're working in and we are going to find a way to work together to help you get to the goal that's important to you. So it's that you know, that um, uh, collaborative spirit, it's that respect for autonomy um, that feels like it is sort of a central skill in in counseling and, and interventions in general. And it's, I, I love hearing how you're applying it, not just, you know, to the ultimate patient, but to your colleagues as well, to your collaborators, to, you know, the, the people you're training with and, and really developing and adapting this intervention. And Shannon, one of your areas of interest is ensuring that implementation science remains practical and applied and doesn't replicate the research to practice gap. I know that's something you're passionate about. You have a new paper about implementation science in plain language. What's that all about? I was mentioning that I had some of my partners also come to the United States. So 
at a conference, we had the Kenyan, the individuals who were Kenyan counselors, lay counselors, and were promoted to be supervisors and trainers. They were invited to do a plenary presentation at the Society for Implementation Research Collaboration in Seattle. And when we did our presentation about, they were doing some implementation coaching that fits within the implementation facilitation literature, but is a much lighter touch, which is why we've continued to call it implementation coaching. But when they talked, we just mentioned as a matter of course, these ways that we adapted implementation terms that are very jargon-filled and distancing when you think about partners, the way that we adapted these terms to be able to have stakeholders like community health volunteers and community health extension workers and ministry of health workers, we adapted implementation constructs to these non-jargon terms so that everybody could understand what we had learned in a sort of pilot study of the intervention in schools and health. And I never thought about that as a scientific product or an outcome. It was just something that we needed to do. But at the conference, people got so excited. They're like, we need more of this. We need non-jargon terms. And so in that paper, we laid out our process of developing non-jargon terms for things like implementation climate and implementation leadership. So for example, in that paper, working with our colleagues at ACE Africa, we were able to have them develop in their own words what implementation leadership would be. And I might get it wrong because I'm not reading exactly from the paper, but it's leaders who are passionate, supportive, um, and I think encouraging of Pomoja Tunawesa, which was the intervention. And I think I missed one of the three words there, so I can pull it up. But when they used those terms in this meeting we had with like 50 stakeholders, people were automatically grasping what we'd found, which was in schools where the head teachers, which is like a principal, were more supportive, passionate, and encouraging of Pomoja Tunawesa teachers were more likely to support the intervention happening. They would get the kids and bring them to the room. They would help their fellow teachers. They would engage in all these behaviors that made the intervention more successful. So people in the room were immediately adopting those terms and saying, yes, how do we get our leaders to be passionate and supportive and using the other terms? And so it was just a real way of being able to communicate clearly on the science and the experience that everybody could have a voice in how do we make changes. And I was really inspired on that paper by something that an editorial that Westerlin wrote where you know she opens the editorial with a person who wants a solution to a public health problem has a different task than someone who wants to create or test a theory. Um, and that was a quote from another paper, but I really resonated with that because we were trying to solve this problem of kids need mental health treatment. And so how do we come at it from a non-jargon? People are on the same page. We can collaborate on the answer together. I really enjoyed this paper that you put together. I One of the things I kind of thought was a little maybe ironic uh, is that you know, to disseminate this information, you put it in a journal article for journal. But that's the thing is that you need to you needed to translate and then back translate <laughs> to research. That is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and like we do in journal articles, you know, it required. It's a nice short article for as journal articles go, but still, 
very long as like a translation type of you know pamphlet or brochure would go and so that's part of the back translation process is you had to put a lot of the kind of the the research adornments on it to, to sort of i guess um validate it or in some way make it seem like a valid piece of work for researchers to digest um but i loved it i thought it was great uh and as you know like i mean one of the reasons why we're doing the podcast is because i'm also passionate about these things trying to get information out to people in a way that they don't have to sort of sit down and, and and read a journal article, which can oftentimes be behind paywalls or just you know be filled with jargon that is difficult to read. Uh, I'm really struck by this quote you just mentioned, so I'm going to repeat it here. A person who wants to find a solution to a public health problem has a different task than someone who wants to create or test a theory. Now, when I applied to graduate school, I went and was interviewed um, at Vanderbilt University by Len Bickman, a person who I respect and admire. Uh, his work. And I was applying to a program called Community Research and Action. And I really wanted to create social change via research. Now, he wasn't in Community Research and Action. He was in a traditional department of psychology. One of the questions he asked me was, if you want to create social change, become a social activist. Don't become a researcher. Right. And I've always kind of pushed against that. And I'm kind of curious what you think about, about that, especially given this quote that we just read. Yeah. Well, yeah, I might have gotten in the wrong job. I mean, I think, you know, these are interesting things to learn later. The reason I still feel like research is a good field is for the kinds of things you care about, Mike, and that I care about, is if what we're doing isn't working, we need to know that and move on. So I think as researchers, you know, we're able to test, did this thing have an effect? Was this thing beneficial? Was it worth your time? I'm interested in making sure that the work that I do has practical and nearly immediate applicability, because that's just the stage of research I want to be involved in. And I know that some of the earlier work that people do that's more theoretical, conceptual, or methodological may eventually have downstream benefits to children and adolescents, my focus. But sometimes we might just get too excited about dancing on the head of a pen and a framework, a model, or a method that may not actually eventually lead to change for children and adolescents. So it's interesting. I never would have expected you'd say Lynn Bickman would say that given that I felt like so much of what he did is so practical itself and, you know, had a goal of changing lives of children and adolescents. But I still think researchers have a role there, but I don't think we have a very good role if we don't partner. It's a huge mistake not to be partnering with communities. As I've said to my graduate students in training, I certainly can't fully understand the role of a lay counselor in Bungle, Kenya. But I also can't fully understand the role of a master's level community mental health provider in a local organization in King County. Because even if you do a practicum there, you spend a day there, you don't know what it's like to have that be your day job for 40 hours a week and what it's like to try to deliver these evidence-based practices in the context of that organization and with children and families who often have a lot bigger needs than just treating their anxiety or treating their depression. So if you don't partner, at least in the work that we do, and you don't have people in the settings where you work, I don't think the work can be very impactful in terms of actual change. And there's huge stuff that we miss. You know, and to the, some of the bigger points you raise here, you know, I think, I think the idea of like, if it doesn't work, let's move on is not just relevant to applied research. I think it's a huge problem in, in basic research as well, that we are not focused enough on, 
you know, is this idea actually, does this hold water or not? We're so focused on confirming. Uh, we're so focused on, well, let's, if we didn't confirm, but we found this moderator, you know, and that works. And then we found this other moderator, or maybe it doesn't work here, but it works in this other context. And we, we're not focused enough on just finding out what we can discard. What ideas can we get? And I think that, you know, leads to problems down the road, you know, when we build a, an intervention science or an implementation science, if it's built on shaky foundations at the research. So I think you're, you know, I love that point that you make, like we, it's much better to find out what we don't know and what doesn't work early on rather than make it years and years and years. And that's one of the reasons I've always been so passionate about open science replication is because exactly that, like how useful is my research going to be if I'm just pursuing sort of, you know, a, a dead line of research that shouldn't, you know, that we should have discarded 20 years ago. Like, you know, maybe we can put the links to these in the show notes because I'm not sure I can just rattle them off my head. But the papers that have come out about how strong is our evidence, you know, those will roll around time to time. And I think, you know, as clinical psychologists or for me and Kevin and for others, I mean, I want to always be questioning are the things that we thought would work in terms of clinical interventions, the things we thought worked from early studies. Is that evidence good? Is it not? Because in a lot of cases, it looks like it's actually kind of shaky. And when people judge community clinicians for not doing evidence-based practices, if that evidence is relatively weak, but you know, if some of the evidence isn't as good as we think it is, and people are judging community clinicians for not delivering so-called evidence-based treatments, we should also be cautious and think about how much are we pushing certain interventions. And I think that's an important place to be. And if the things work in lab settings, as we talk about on an implementation science podcast, and they don't work in a community setting, then we need different treatments because they're not going to benefit kids in lab settings. They're going to benefit kids. And so if you can't deliver X in a community setting, then it needs to look different. Yeah. It's especially bad when you have, when you sort of say, Hey, we, you know, you can't get this treatment to work in your community setting. What's wrong with you when the treatment itself, even done in the ideal lab setting was P hacked to death or was low powered and oversold, or even just, you know, sort of innocently, you know, got some promising evidence, but was never really replicated strongly or never really followed with the really big robust samples that we need. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, Hey, we have this absolute gold standard of a treatment that we know is effective when you do it this particular way by these graduate students trained in the experts lab. And we've done it on thousands of people. So we're really, you know, it's, that's one thing. If there are any treatments like that, it's another, if we give a sh shaky foundation, then like you say, blame someone who's overworked, seeing diversity of patients who has little support and little supervision. Why are we blaming the end user? If we're not even sure if our te technology is good. Yeah. If we have, research on interventions that are based entirely on perfect contexts that are never going to exist in the real world, then those aren't effective. <laughs> you know, the, uh, exactly. I think one of the, one of the challenges that I have with implementation science is it does provide a convenient excuse for why implement, why interventions don't work. And it could provide that, which is like, oh, well, we just didn't implement it correctly. We need to do this differently or this differently or adapt this or that. And those might be valid answers. Those might be perfect reasonable responses, but at some point, another response needs to be, actually, this just isn't going to be effective in the real world. It's never going to be effective in the real world. Um, you know, there's a new paper by uh, Renad Betis and uh, Lisa Saldana, and I believe one other author, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting their name, but um, uh, it's just a short little opinion piece, I believe, that is um, basically makes the argument that 
um, you know, for much of psychosocial research, we can skip past the safety phase. We should skip past the efficacy phase and just go straight to effectiveness uh, because uh, because why not? We know that most of the components of psychosocial interventions are safe, and uh, many of them have some proven of efficacy in a lab somewhere. We're oftentimes just combining them in different in different orders, and so let's go see if it works in the real world and why why or why not. Well, and John Weiss has been writing about that for a long time. Deployment setting research, like skip all that. Do your trial where it is meant to be delivered because you need to learn there. There's probably bigger differences in the settings than across anything else. It seems, yeah, that seems just incredibly critical. And, you know, sometimes resources can be all that matters. Like, you know, sometimes I wonder the amount of money that we put into say an R01 testing a particular implementation strategy. What if that 2.5 million went to three community mental health organizations and they use that money to find the resources to be able to free themselves to do things a little differently? Or what if that money went straight to families so they can uh, have a house for their children or uh, a fence to keep them safe or, or what have you? Or Yeah. I mean, we talk about structural differences like cash transfers. There's a yeah. lot of that globally. And with the Great Smoky Mountain studies, when the casinos came in and tribes got a lot of money, children's lives changed. So a lot of times I wish we could pour more of the resources that we put into research or even this tiny little precious strategy just directly into the hands of children and adolescents. That's an even better step, Mike, and not even to the organizations, but, you know, children and families first and maybe to organizations because, yeah, it's hard to know sometimes where we're having an impact and where maybe we're studying a lot that in the field of implementation science, have we really made a difference in how people implement things and do we spend too much time on heads of pins and not actually on as that quote. And, and I really like the editorial by Westerlin where she's really calling for practical implementation science. I love that study, the Great Smoky Mountain study so much. You and I have talked about this before. I don't know if Kevin's familiar with this, but this was, if I recall, it's been a long time since I've read it, so I could get a lot of this wrong. But if I recall, it was a system of care study. So they were doing implementing um, sort of modifications to help improve collaboration and communication among systems that serve kids with mental health problems um, in uh, a variety in a, in a few in a few different settings. One of those settings was a um, Native American tribe, a tribal location that uh, halfway there was a nice natural experiment that em emerged when it uh, implemented a um, or had developed a casino. And it went overnight from, I think, 80% unemployment to like 20% unemployment, plus cash transfers from the casino to uh, tribal areas. And we saw effect sizes for youth internalizing and externalizing problems that is, were much, much greater than any sort of therapy could ever deliver. And if, in fact, one of them, I believe, so one of them was statistically significant. I can't remember if it was internalizing or externalizing. The other one, they, they claimed, oh, this didn't impact the other one. But if you look at it, the p-value for that was like 0 0.053 or something. You know what I mean? Like, so strong evidence that just simply getting a community to have better employment and a better economic situation can do far more than one-to-one um, -one therapy. We call that and the, 0.053, just kissing the boundaries of significance. So it's even stronger because it wasn't the SAMHSA-funded intervention study. It was truly an epi-study that Adrian Angold, Jane Costello did. I was actually on their floor. So I would run into them in the lunchroom and stuff when I was at Duke. And it was really an epi study, very tightly controlled, 
very just amazing sampling across North Carolina and they saw those effects and it's just really, yeah, it's super powerful for differences you can make in the lives of children and adolescents. All right, Shannon. So next up, we have a quiz for you. This is, we're going to ask you a series of questions. And uh, if you get them right, then you'll get a prize that uh, Kevin will talk about in just a second. Now, we pulled the idea for this quiz um, from some of your past experience and some of the experiences that you and I have had together. And the idea originally comes from Amber Share, who runs an Instagram for Subpar Parks. We're going to read to you actual Yelp reviews from six national parks, and you'll need to tell us which of which park they're talking about from this Yelp review. And here's a hint, is that two of the parks are parks that you and I have been to together, and a third you once worked at. Okay, and the prize, which is starting to become pretty popular and well-known um, around here, is uh, I will write an out-of-office reply for you for the next time that you're out of the office. Now, you might already know this because you're my colleague, but I am have become somewhat well-known in a very small circle of people, including uh, my wife and Mike's mom, for the out-of-office replies that I write. So if you win the prize, um, and I'll have to explain our scoring system as we go because it's relatively ad hoc, I'll write an out-of-office message for you next. A couple of our guests have already taken us up on it and been very pleased. Um, Mike actually took me up on it as well. Um, so the out of office message that, that I, I, I can share, like one example from last summer was damn it. COVID finally got me and my whole family. What you say, you're not surprised given that my last out of office message was all about our vacation to Lake Chelan. Look, buddy, irony died with the nineties. We're all just trying to make it one more day. I hope to feel better soon and return to my regular pace of replying to emails. But in the meantime, wear a mask and get your shots. So that was obviously a little bit dated last year when we got COVID, but, um, that is, that is mine. <laughs> so that is a prize. You won't get that exact office out of office measures unless you go to Lake Chelan and get COVID like we did. Um, but I will happily write one for the next time you're out of the office. You just have to give me a few details about um, what you're going to be out of the office for, and um, I will write it. So, Mike, why don't we go to question one and why don't you lead off? Sure. All right. So the first quote is, and young man, you have to tell us which national park they're talking about. The first quote is, paid $20 to get in, didn't even get to touch lava. And I'm supposed to guess after each you're one? To, you're supposed to guess. Which national park is that from? I mean, I'm going to guess Rainier because it has a volcano and we've been bike camping there. Oh, that that is a good guess. It's not one I had thought of. Um, sorry, it's wrong. That's uh, it's Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Okay, and Shannon, you get negative five points for that one. Sorry, seriously. Okay, this next one: there are mosquitoes everywhere, and I can get a larger portion of food from Olive Garden for the same price. Hard pass. Restock your beer more frequently. We bought you out in three days. That one has no specifics at all. No, I can give you a hint. <laughs> okay, I'll take a hint. It's in the state of Oregon. Mm. And now I'm blanking all my Oregon parks. Um, you're going to have to give me that one. I'll give you a hint. It has the words National Park in it. <laughs> <laughs> that that You'd think that would help me. Maybe I need more caffeine today. It's a lake. 
Here we go. It's I'm a lake impacted there. by Crater outer space. Lake, <laughs> Crater Lake. Google comes go. in handy. Google comes in handy. I have not been yet, and it is on my list. That's why All I could right. call it to mind. That's All excellent. Right. We're going to give you a somewhat agree for that one. So that is so your current score is somewhat agree minus five. <laughs> I, I have to use a sort of integrated scoring system after the fact, um, but it'll make sense at the end, I promise. All right, next quote. This place was the worst. I'm not saying it wasn't pretty, but it makes me remember the episode of The Cosby Show where Vanessa is engaged to someone and Bill Cosby says that it was like a juicy piece of steak presented on a trash can lid. That's what this place was. A mountain served on a trash can lid. I am going to guess Rainier again for that one. Nice one. Ding, ding, ding. 150 Finally. points for the 150 points for that one. That's excellent. And we've yeah. been there a few times. Would you agree that it's a mountain served on a trash can lid? I would not agree. No. Yeah, me either. What's the trash can lid? Puyallup? <laughs> um, at the time of our visit, half the road was cl- I apologize, by the way, the residents of Puyallup um, and all surrounding areas around Rainier. I did not mean any offense. It was just the first town that came to mind. Okay. Next one, Shannon. At the time of our visit, half the road was closed due to snow. Well, there was no snow on the mountains and it being late June, it could not possibly have snowed there. Was there a UFO landing? Pretty fishy. That's Glacier. Ooh, good one. How did you know that one? I did live and work there, and the road is closed until usually late July. Yeah, that's right. Outstanding. I've heard that they they leave it open, or they open it two weeks early only for bikes, and you can bike across, right? And it sounds pretty, that sounds very cool. Okay, that's, so Shannon, you're currently, um, sorry, your um, score for that was all of the time. So you're currently at 145 plus somewhat agree and all of the time. I think this is actually a three. She's on a three question streak. So let's see if we can close nice. it out with, nice. we got two more. Let's see if two we can close it out questions. with some wins. All right. Just make sure um, it's not about a park in Oregon. Yeah. It's not about, this one's not about Oregon. Um, maybe I'll go ahead and give you a pre-hint and say it is a Washington park, but Washington has three national parks, which is pretty rare for a state. So, you know, that's not a, that's not a gimme. Okay. Quote. I've seen a lot better. Try going to Utah. You will be blown away by the parks there. I'm going to guess it's Olympic. Very good. Very good. You're doing fantastic. Only just because it's the other park we've been to together in Washington. There you go. All right. Five points for that one. Um, Okay. Here's your last one. They didn't expect to get electricity for at least half a week. Have you ever camped with a woman for half a week when there is no available warm water anywhere? They start to stink and complain. And to top it off, we never got to see any bears or mountain lions. Thanks a lot, Obama. <laughs> I have no idea. Yosemite? <laughs> Incorrect. That is Big Bend National Park. Big Bend and Bear. The clue okay. there was the stinky women. No, I probably should cut that out. Um, there is no, there was nothing there at all. Yeah, you know, I, when I first read this one, I was really confused about the Obama reference. And then I was like, oh, maybe Obama oh, had something to do with Big Ben, but he, did, he ben? didn't. That's not, no? yeah, no, nothing to do with Big Ben. That was Bears Ears, which was a national monument. So I don't know. I don't know why we have Obama to thank for the fact that they didn't have electricity or running water. Or mountain lions. That that would be disappointing. All right. Shannon, well, you did you did amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, you did. You did amazing. I think your final score is 155 plus some degree and all of the time. I'll have to put that through our scoring rubric. Um, but I'm pretty sure based on my estimations that you have won our prize. So the next time you go on a vacation or out of the office, or even just decide to stay home from the department because you don't want to be uh, in the office and see any of us, um, I will write an out of office message for you. Just feel free to take me up on it any time. Sounds so, outstanding. Congrats. You really, I would say this, you know, this was one of our harder quizzes. I would say there's a lot fewer context clues in it. And I think you, you did impressively well. All right. Uh, well, this has been such a great conversation. We're going to ask you a couple more questions and then kind of close out here. Um, so I guess kind of similar to my last question, uh, but more broadly speaking, where do you see the field of implementation science more generally speaking, like headed next or where would you direct it if you could, if you could point the field in a certain direction? Yeah. I mean, I really like the pitfalls article that we wrote with Renad Betis and Kara Lewis is on that and lots of other folks in the field, because I think it is good for us to look at where are we replicating a research to practice gap? Where are we getting too precious that things are only in the hands of card carrying implementation scientists? And where are there places that maybe we've tried to reify or make things too precious around some of our implementation science aspects, you know, that's why I like the plain language paper, even though, as you said, I was having to tr back translate it, you know, thinking about what are just sort of the simpler things that we can work on and do that will make a difference. So I think there's a piece of field of implementation that's science that's going to go forward with frameworks and models and, you know, causal pathway diagrams and all the kind of things. And then there's another piece that I think hopefully can be focused on this direct application and practicability and practicality. And I wish there was a way to sort of bridge these two pieces. I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but I wish there was a way to do that. I'm just curious, how many more frameworks do you think implementation science needs before it is actually a true science? So I guess related to just the broad field of implementation science, what are one or two of the most important implementation science publications that you think any budding implementation science researcher should read? I would ask people to read the Westerlin editorial. I think it's a good reframe when it came out. People were pretty excited about the fact that this was calling for practical implementation science. And I think I'll leave it at that one for now, but it's a good reorientation for anyone who might get excited about the science to remember who's actually looking for the solutions and whose lives we're trying to impact. Yeah, and that paper for our our, our two listeners are is called uh, implementation of implementation science knowledge, the research practice gap paradox. Shannon, any shout outs to any special people in your work or personal life? That is a great question. Well, one of my major shout outs is actually to Mike Pullman, who's always been a close collaborator, friend and supporter. And you're so rigorous in everything that you do. And you always center stakeholders. So that's one thing I've loved about you, Mike. You're both. You're like rigor, science, and also the importance of stakeholders and community. So, I, you know, that is, that's a major call out. Thanks, Jim. Kara Lewis is another big one. Um, Kara Lewis and I, as you know, PI'd the Impact Center till she went to NIH. And we have this wonderful thing where... She's more on the methods and the mechanism side, and I'm on the practical side. And she respects that practicality. And I think, you know, one of her book, the book dedication was 
to me for saying I always insist on implementation science being practical. And she doesn't mind that I call out and ask for when were the mechanisms have a practical benefit and like, how can we make sure that all this methods work does carry down to improve the lives of children and adolescents. So those would be two major call outs for me. And then ACE Africa who have been outstanding collaborators in all of the work and leaders that we've done trying to bring Pohojojunawesa or trauma-focused CBT to Western Kenya. Well, Shannon, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your friendship and your mentorship over the years. I've learned so much from you. I feel like that first grant proposal that we put together, I learned more from writing that with you than I've learned in all of the years since about how to write a really quality grant proposal. So um, I just really appreciate that. I'm glad that you came on. I know that you're a busy person. uh, And so thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I would just add, Shannon, I've been your colleague for maybe 10 years and I really have nothing kind to say. So I'll leave it there. That's not true if you look at Kevin's Twitter. You can find what we're doing if you look at Kevin's Twitter. That is true. No, I, I would, uh, 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 Shannon, you're a, you're an outstanding, wonderful mo- a role model of a scientist in, in every way. And I will also say you're a tremendous departmental citizen and mentor to your students and just a wonderful, wonderful colleague. So I'm lucky that I get to work with you and I'm lucky that I get to be on the same faculty as you. One of the funny things about Shannon that I've, I've always found is that she's so involved in so many different things. So I will see some funny or interesting article, journal article. I'll send it to Shannon and say, hey, have you seen this? Because it's about supervision or about international work or whatever. And she's like, oh, yeah, I guest edited that whole journal. Or, or oh, yeah, yeah, no, I've been working with those people for the last like 15 years. Like she's, ne- I've never sent her anything that she hasn't heard of or been aware of or been involved in in some way. And I just don't know how she that does it all the time. It's, it is pretty true. So anyway, I've always been impressed by that for sure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, do all the things that podcast hosts ask you to do. Post about it on social media, like, subscribe, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Every time you do these things, a community partnership gets its wings. If you didn't like today's show, please translate your plain language critique into professional terms that Kevin and I can understand, such as, the auditory content of your podcast appears to lack the desired quality, rendering it suboptimal for audience engagement and overall sonic satisfaction. In other words, your podcast stinks. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or our employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Shannon Dorsey, we'll catch you next time.
Yeah, all I did, Shannon, for my merit review this year was just talk about the podcast because um, <laughs> I figure that's my one yeah. shot yeah. to me too. Yeah, more respect in the department and in the field, really. <laughs>